zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Fan, released May 15th, 1981. It was written by Priscilla Chapman and John Hartwell, based on a novel by Bob Randall, directed by Ed Bianchi, and released by Paramount Pictures. In 1977, Bob Randall's novel The Fan was published, producer Robert Stigwood acquired the rights and considered Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine alongside Bacall for the lead role. At some point, Elizabeth Taylor was slated to star with Jeff Lieberman directing, but neither was attached very long. He hired Norman Wexler to adapt the screenplay and Weris Hussein to direct. Hussein was born Weris Habibullah, but changed his name to Hussein because he didn't want people to think he was related to the King of Jordan. But that mm, backfired. Yeah. After multiple delays, Diana Hammond was hired for a page one rewrite, but the screenplay credits are shared by Priscilla Chapman and John Hartwell. Hussein eventually left the project due to creative differences, and Edward Bianchi was brought on. In the run-up to production, as we've mentioned before, John Lennon was killed outside his apartment, the Dakota, which was also home to actress Lauren Bacall. During production, Reagan was shot, though not fatally, and two days before the film released, Pope John Paul II was shot. Trailers for the film were preceded with a disclaimer. Because of the similarities between the forthcoming motion picture of the fan and the tragic death of John Lennon, we feel that it is important for you to know that in no way is the film based upon the events that led to his death. During production, the schedule was derailed when Bacall became ill with chickenpox. The following year saw the release of a West German horror film called Der Fan, with a very similar plot. And 14 years after that, another American film called The Fan was released with Wesley Snipes and Robert De Niro. The film opens with tense music as our titular fan, Douglas Breen, as played by Michael Bean, types out a letter to his favorite actress, Sally Ross, as played by Lauren Bacall. We pan across framed headshots of Sally in Doug's apartment, and we hear him typing madly. We see macro photography of autographed playbills, a Swiss Army knife, a couple of pencils, and general stationery. All of these inserts are so pleasantly photographed that I was sure these were scaled up props until we get to the end of the sequence, where Doug's fingers are frantically pounding away at a typewriter. We hear him reading a letter addressed to Sally. I bought a gorgeous new lucite frame for one of your most famous pictures. The one of you singing while President Truman plays the piano. I despise those desperate, pathetic people who intrude upon your privacy. Your happiness and peace of mind must be protected. I feel like we must be hearing bits and pieces of this letter, because the way it's structured here sounds very disjointed. I know of all the famous men in your life, but I adore you as no other ever has, or ever will. One of the macro shots is of Doug's big puffy lips filling the frame. It's an almost cartoonish distortion of a human mouth, and it's very effective and creepy. Thank you for the inspiration you have given me. You are the greatest star of all. Your friend, Douglas Breen. We see him type out the final line of the letter on the page, and then yank the paper from the typewriter. P.S. Could you send me your most recent photograph as soon as possible? We cut to two stage doors opening outside a theater in New York, and a mob swarms Sally's POV to beg for autographs. She obliges the crowd, even signing some of the autographs with her own pen, only to have a rabid fan snatch it from her hand and run off across the street. I was sure she was going to get hit by a car here. Yeah. But she makes it to the opposite corner before she is tripped by a man, Douglas, who collects the pen and smiles smugly at her. We see a huge sign over the theater announcing Sally Ross in something called It's Called Tomorrow. We cut to Douglas walking home at night. We see him turn to head up the stairs into his building, at least I'm assuming it's his building, because earlier in the film we saw an envelope with his apartment address labeled 344 West 49th Street, but this is 334 West 49th Street, which I know because I Google mapped it, and it's actually that building. (laughs) 
Sally gets home to her building around the same time and looks at herself in the elevator mirror on her way up to her floor. Douglas finds his mailbox empty of a response from Sally and punches the wall before moving inside. Doug sits down at his typewriter to begin a follow-up letter. In her apartment, Sally picks up a black-and-white photograph of her and ex-husband Jake Berman, as played by James Garner, and we hear Doug's letter again. Dear Miss Ross, I understand an important and glamorous star like yourself doesn't have time to answer every letter personally. But frankly, I couldn't help feeling hurt when I got that note signed by your secretary. I know that after you speak to her, it won't happen again. All my love, Douglas Breen. Sally picks up her bedside phone to make a call to ex-husband Jake Berman, but gets his answering machine. She tells him she's glad he didn't pick up, and lets him know that tonight was the last performance of It's Called Tomorrow. Next up is a musical. She confesses that sometimes she regrets divorcing him and that this is one of those times. Then she hangs up. P.S. Would you also tell her that the photograph she sent me was one I already have? We see a close-up of Doug signing the letter and then cut to a postal truck pulling away from Sally's building. We hear Sally's assistant, Belle Goldman, as played by Maureen Stapleton, composing a response. Dear Mr. Breen, Enclosed is another photograph. Sorry I sent you one you already have. The last thing I would want to do is to disappoint any member of Miss Ross's fan club. Yours truly, Belle Goldman. Up in Sally's hotel suite, Belle is juggling multiple phone calls while a maid named Elsa aggressively vacuums toward her. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, Belle hucks a porcelain coaster at her to get her to stop approaching the phone with the vacuum. I feel like she should have taken the hint sooner, so this is totally valid. <laughs> I think that she was doing it on purpose to piss her off. Yeah, I, I think, I feel like it's like a... A was, game they play. Exactly. Sally enters the room in a bathrobe to wish her staff a good morning, and they are quickly singing her happy birthday. Oh, speaking of which, we should mention that Richard Wells celebrated a birthday this happy week. Happy birthday, Richard Wells. Happy birthday, Richard. Well, I mean, coming soon, we'll be celebrating my actual birth That's on, true. on the show. That's right. I'm it's sorry. not real until we're covering that time period yeah. in 1981. Oh, Okay, sorry, I was really confused. I'm like, I'm sorry, we're we doing like a play-by-play. Was it recorded? <laughs> was this a feature film we're gonna, release? We're going to cover that footage when we get there. <laughs> it's like Caligula. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! Happy birthday oh, no, to no, you! No, no. Happy birthday! Listen, listen, you guys. We're supposed to forget this one. As of today, I'm going to be 45 forever. 49. The card on the top goes with the flowers over there. 47. That's definitely my last offer. Elsa, I'd kill for a cup of coffee. Oh, I'd get you a cup. She was actually 55 or 56 when they shot this film. Like, she looks, for her age, she actually looks older than that. I thought she looked like she was at least in her 60s. I thought she was in her mid mid to late 60s in this. But I think, I feel like, I don't know, actresses or people in general just age differently now. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that the birth date that is she on record for written... her is not the correct <laughs> birthday. That is, that is a valid point. But I was yeah. going to say, like somebody like th- that's basically the age that like Nicole Kidman is now, and I'm like, she doesn't look like Nicole Kidman. Yeah. <laughs> like in, in terms of you know, and the character that she's 50s. playing is younger than Paul Rudd. Yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah. I I feel like they sh- they they it's weird that they made her even younger like i agree i would have i would have made her older i guess if anything but maybe that's offensive well and but but power to her because she continued to perform and act for like another 25 years yeah yeah yeah. she kept working yeah i'm just saying i'm just saying story-wise i feel like it's a weird it was a weird choice because like you know like the 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 sort of has-been star that's doing things like stage productions now you know role that she's playing here yeah i would have been like 50 like that seems a little young to be that but she actually was that at the time even um like she was just starting to perform in a lot of plays and stuff in the 80s so but it yeah i agree with you it's it's an odd choice to to age her down for the character Mm -hmm. bell tells sally that her morning schedule includes a luncheon date with her ex-husband Apparently, he's in town during pre-production for a film. Belle finds a letter from Douglas, the one suggesting that Sally reprimands Belle, and reads it out loud to Sally, but she's not listening. 
I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I think your secretary needs a talking to. She enclosed a very snide letter with the photograph, actually referring to me as a member of your fan club. I'm not one of those cheap, anonymous little stargazers, as she so smugly insinuated. We cut to Sally finding her ex, Jake, in the building lobby. He walks her to a car outside and explains that he'll be here in the city for almost a year. In the car, on the way to lunch, they seem like old friends. Both are quick to blame themselves for their separation. At one point, Sally points a finger at Jake to silence him, and he pretends to bite it, causing them both to laugh. (laughs) We cut to them on their date. Sally goes dark for a minute and forgives Jake for throwing away 15 years of marriage and for currently dating someone young enough to be their daughter. She lies that she's comfortable alone and that it was unavoidable. He confesses that he's not as comfortable alone as she is and comes to the defense of his new girlfriend, complimenting her intelligence. He also takes this opportunity to announce that he intends to marry the girl. Sally wants to change the subject. Quick, let's think of something funny. Across town, Doug arrives for his shift at a record store, and his boss points him to some work that needs doing without even looking at him. Doug bumps elbows with a co-worker and complains that she took a two-hour lunch in place of a 45-minute one. The co-worker is a very young Dana Delaney. She tells him that she was scoring concert tickets, but he doesn't seem to care. She also mentions that she got special permission. Right. And she tries to offer him a ticket, like she's interested in him. Yeah. And he shuts her down because he does not give a shit about the concert he has one love it's sally ross fuck off lady as she walks away from him he dumps a box of records at her feet and then gives her a weird look like oops like i didn't just totally destroy all these records yeah that's all coming out of my paycheck back in sally's apartment bell is leaving for the day and sally asks her plans i'm doing steamed vegetables the laundry and the late show one of your old movies is on that ought to put me to sleep That night, Douglas is preparing a romantic dinner for two and sets it up on a table in his apartment when his sister comes knocking at his door. She tells him that the family is worried about him because he only ever shows up to ask for money. He tells her that she's interrupting. You've interrupted a very wonderful evening. Right now I'm having dinner with a very famous actress. A great star of stage and screen. Who? Never mind. Look, Doug, it was one thing when we were kids to, to dress up and collect stuff and, and pretend. But when you grow up, you gotta face the world like... He slams the door in her face and locks it. He returns to his imaginary date with Sally. The next morning, Doug watches Sally exit her hotel, and we hear another letter about that pesky secretary that she should fire. We cut to a rehearsal loft full of dancers preparing for Sally's new musical. The director is excited to see Sally arrive and introduces her to the team. She warns them that this is her first musical and they'll need to give her some time to catch up. We cut back and forth from the rehearsal to another Doug letter being composed and another and another, presumably these are all going unanswered. The letters are getting angrier and scarier and the last one we hear in the bunch gets more graphic. It has taken me a long time to say this, but I know the time is now right. We will be lovers very soon, my darling. And believe me, I have all the necessary equipment to make you very, very happy. The next morning, Belle is going through her mail and starts to tell her about the latest letter. You got a really raunchy letter from that weirdo fan I tried to tell you about. Listen, you remember that black dress, the one with the straps? Did you remember to have it fixed? Yeah. Listen, Sally, he's driving me crazy. We cut back to Doug's apartment where he's practicing a conversation with his manager at the record store. His face is very shiny and half in shadow. I, I don't think he's... A, I think he's at the record store. Is he? I think he's in the mm-hmm. back room. Oh, yeah, okay. because the guy gets mad. He's like, where have you been? When he and he's been rehearsing out. the conversation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's funny. It sounds like he's planning to complain about his coworker. I know she's attractive, if you like that kind. But frankly, I think her brains are all in her tits. I think she's taking advantage of you, John. Typical proto-incel manifesto. Her. What does that mean, by the way? Her brains are in her tits? I was I, w- I was wondering that myself. Does that I'm mean like... she has big brains? Because <laughs> she has big boobs? I don't understand. Moments later, when he tries to broach the subject with his boss, he is cut off with work to do. I've got something I'd like to talk to you about, John. Oh, yeah. Likewise. And I'll go first. I ask you to put that stuff in the bins right away. Instead, you were off the floor for the last 15 minutes. Well, Linda's supposed to help me with that stuff. Linda wasn't even here when I asked you to do it. She's with a customer now. Get moving, will you? Doug doesn't have the balls to follow through with his complaint and instead buckles down to complete the task that John requested. We hear Douglas dictate another letter, bragging that he told his boss off, which he never did. 
I finally had it out with that Hitler in the record store. When I finished with a despicable worm, everybody in the store applauded me. Meanwhile, in the ensuing 40 years, the phrase, and everybody clapped, has become a meme for a story that didn't happen. <laughs> At the very least, it does sound like he quit the job and will now devote all of his time to writing letters. Well, quit, maybe. Yeah, he's not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, or at least we don't see him go back. He finally gets a letter back and he's ecstatic as he cuts it open on his stoop to read, Dear Mr. Breen, point one. I have no intention of showing your tasteless letter to Miss Ross. Point two, I believe there is a law against sending pornography through the mail. Point three, if you should be so ill-advised as to write her any more letters, I can assure you there will be no reply. Is that is the implication that he sent a picture of his junk? No, she's calling the words that he used pornography yeah. when okay, he said yeah. he was going to make love to her and he had equipment for okay. her. Okay, because I wasn't sure if... I mean, I wouldn't put it past this guy. yeah. Like, you send me a photo, I send you a photo. This is, like, old school dick pic, you know. Still text. technically a headshot. <laughs> I signed it for you. Ew. Before I took the photograph. <laughs> From overhead, we see Doug sitting on a bench in a sea of empty benches and composing a final letter that he intends to deliver himself. Now I know why I haven't heard from you. Your secretary has been intercepting my letters. Obviously, she is jealous of our relationship. Her possessiveness worries me. Has it occurred to you that she might have lesbian tendencies? Again, he recommends firing her. On a break, one of the dancers asks Sally if she wants anything from a coffee shop, and she invites him down to a health food store because coffee stunts your growth. I think the joke is because he's already super tall. Oh, is it? Maybe that was the joke. I don't remember his height. I didn't clock it. I assumed dancers were smaller people. But maybe... Just as they walk out of the building, Douglas walks in and rides up in the elevator with Belle. Apparently, Maureen Stapleton has a deathly fear of elevators. Oh. And while they were shooting this scene, the elevator car, like, shuddered, and she collapsed to the ground and had to crawl out of the elevator. But they already got all of her angles, so they were like, we're done. (laughs) Get out and don't go back in. Douglas doesn't know that the woman in the elevator with him is the one who's been refusing his letters. Just outside the rehearsal studio... Doug hands off his final letter to a production assistant at the door, played by Griffin Dunn. Hmm. The PA turns around and hands the letter to Belle, addressing her by name within earshot of Douglas, so now Doug knows that this letter's not going to make it to Sally, and this woman must be Belle. He ducks around the corner and stares furiously into the camera. He walks directly across the street from the building to a knife shop. (laughs) The knife shop scene reminded me of a scene uh, from Archer, where he pulls out a switchblade and Mallory goes, where did you get a switchblade? It's a long story, mother. It just cuts to him looking in a window and at a nice star and goes, neat. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime later in Sally's apartment, Belle presents the final letter. Not having paid any attention to the previous correspondence, Sally thinks it's possible that Douglas is right and that Belle has been unfair to him. I hope you haven't taken to treating all my fans like this. Sally tells Belle that it's her job to deal with these people with politeness and patience, and Belle is furious that Sally doesn't appreciate the work that she puts into this part of her job. He wants to be your lover, for Christ's sake. What was I supposed to do, give him an appointment? You were supposed to handle it. Firmly, but nicely. That's your job. And I think that's exactly what she did in the previous letters. I think she could have been nicer about it. I think that that's what her complaint is, that, she, that she's doing it in a way that's making the person angry instead of trying to diffuse I, the situation. I, I think that it was perfectly reasonable amount of niceness. I agree that it's the letter he deserved to get back. I'll say that much. But what I'm saying is, with these crazy people, you have to say, your dick was so magnificent. Thank you for the photograph. And we're, we're, we're all full up on dick here. Don't send any more <laughs> letters. We're good. Thank you. You're wonderful. Belle tries to explain how humiliating it is to pretend to be happy all day, interfacing with the public on her behalf, and right on cue, the phone rings. I got a phone growing out of one ear and a big fake smile on my face. Eight, ten, twelve hours a day. Hello. No, she isn't. I'm sorry. And she'll be sorry to have missed you. Yes, I will. I will. I'll tell her. Yes. Ta-ta. After seeing this interaction, Sally approaches Belle affectionately, and Belle apologizes, but Sally admits that she couldn't function without her. Sally never apologizes. Right, she does not. She just says, I forgive you. I forgive you for putting up with me. 
She advises Belle to ignore Douglas from now on, and incorrectly predicts that he is harmless. That evening, Elsa the maid answers the door for David Branham, the dancer from the health food store. He's here to escort Sally to a party. At the party, we can see Jake and his new girl. Jake and Sally come face to face on the dance floor and introduce each other to their dates. As expected, Jake's date seems like a jerk, refusing to shake Sally's hand upon introduction. We cut back to Belle on her way home, taking the subway, and we see Douglas following her, dripping with sweat. This scene kept getting pushed back in the production schedule because of a transit strike, and they got it toward the end of the production. He follows her closely and waits for a train to pass through the station, making a lot of noise to begin his attack. He slashes at her face twice with a straight razor, and she smears her blood on his cheek. It looks like he's cradling her as he lowers her to the ground, and we cut to Jake moving through the hospital looking for Sally. It's a good sign already that we're at a hospital and not a police station. Well, but the background of this looked like the lower levels of a hospital. Oh, the, maybe. The tile walls, I was like, oh, this is the more yeah. like she had to ID the body or something. Jake finds Sally and her makeup is running in tears. She throws her arms around him. We see another letter being typed up. My darling, it was over very quickly, and I feel glad. Sally shares with Jake how weird it is that the attacker didn't take her purse or any of her money. We dip to black and then fade up in Belle's hospital room, where her face is thoroughly bandaged, but she's alive. Yeah. What did that mean? It was very quick. <laughs> it was over very quick. It's like, yeah. I cut her quickly, but I, she's still alive, so it's a very slow death. But. <laughs> I mean, unless he thought that he had killed her. It seems like he doesn't understand how human bodies work. That's true. Belle asks if Sally has bothered to replace her, and she says Elsa is coming five days a week now, and the mail doesn't matter because no one writes letters anymore. Belle reminds her sarcastically that utilities come through the mail, and if you don't pay bills, they'll turn off your electricity. Sally promises to check the mail. That night, she reads the latest letter from Douglas. My darling, it was over very quickly, and I feel glad because I never wanted her to suffer. The important thing was to get her out of the way so that we could be together. Without Miss Goldman to worry about, you can answer this right away. But remember, we'll have to keep our relationship secret for a while. I know it's agony, my darling, but be patient. Soon we will be free to express our love. Fiercely, openly, over and over again. I know how you ache and burn for my touch. He advises she write him back immediately to avoid consequences. We cut two hours later, Sally and Jake are seated on the couch and Inspector Raphael Andrews has arrived, played by Hector Elizondo, his second detective character for the podcast after American Gigolo last year. Inspector Andrews remarks that these letters have the tone of an intimate friend and Sally explains that lots of her fans feel that way. He asks for any previous letters Doug has written, but Sally doesn't hold on to them. Unfortunately, Douglas did not sign his latest missive so they don't have a name to start from. I think they have a first name, but they don't have a last name. Yeah, and he stopped putting the return address. Right. Even though he insists they know how to contact him. Right. Well, Because be he fair, assumes they're keeping all the letters. They, he, he, he was written several letters, and if yeah. that really is his address, in theory, I, I feel like he would think that they had it, which he does. He right. writes the letter. He thinks that they know his address. That seems dangerous. But, but then why stop putting it on the envelope? plot reasons you <laughs> <laughs> can't you can't have ego in one way and not have it in the other you know well maybe the point is i don't have to keep putting my address she knows where i live she's got my address memorized she probably comes by and watches me when i leave in the morning too <laughs> for some reason sally wants to keep this new information about why bell got stabbed away from her but andrew says that that's not really an option hours later the inspector has left and sally and jake are chatting on her patio Jake tells Sally that he has to call his girlfriend to cancel a previous engagement, but she gives him permission to leave, requesting a call tomorrow. It's called tomorrow. Get it? We cut to the next day where Inspector Andrews is questioning Belle in the hospital. He's trying to jog her memory to figure out a name for the attacker. So far, all they have is a first name. All right, Douglas what? Douglas A, Douglas B, Douglas C. I, I have a good memory. I think maybe I'm just blocking it out and that and the fact that by the time I really started paying attention to him he quit signing his last name I understand Douglas what? 
airbags. <laughs> just immediately springs it on her to try and startle like her to, to remember. And she's like, Fairbanks, I don't know. <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks arrested <laughs> posthumously. What? <laughs> they had to exhume him. The inspector apologizes for his methods. We cut back to the rehearsal loft where Inspector Andrews just stands in a doorway and watches Sally work her way through one of the musical songs. This was the first hint we get that she might end up with the inspector at the end of the film. And there's a couple more hints along the way. Mm -hmm. Outside the building, we see her date, David Branham, walk Sally to a taxi so that she can check on Belle in the hospital. David crosses the street to where Douglas is having breakfast, watching him. Doug pays his bill and leaves the diner to follow David. They enter the West Side YMCA and head down to the pool. Do you guys recall the last time we went to the YMCA? Uh, was it the Village People movie? Can't stop the music. There you go. <laughs> Douglas must have had some idea that they'd head this way because he seems prepared with a bathing suit. Or maybe not. Maybe he's just swimming in his underwear. It, it kind of looked like he might be swimming in like boxer shorts. Yeah. David starts doing laps and Douglas swims low over the bottom of the pool and pulls a straight razor out of his shorts. He swims directly under David going the opposite direction and then reaches up with the blade to slash open David's stomach in the pool. Does this kill him? No. No, he. we, we cover later that he survives this oh, incident. Oh, okay. I was unclear. Unlike that water. That was filled with blood? Yeah. Yeah. My dearest darling, once more I have proven my love. I'm ready to do it again and again. You know that. But still you refuse to acknowledge me. Still, you seem to delight in tormenting your one true champion. This is sadistic and insane. Be warned, there's a limit to my patience. I expect a letter tomorrow. Tomorrow, Sally. It's called tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know. Even even with the modern post office, I don't know if I would expect a letter to get there tomorrow. Yeah. We come back to Sally's apartment later that day, and Jake is asking what they're doing to protect Sally. Andrew tells him that she's guarded 24 hours a day, including an officer on site in her apartment. He asks how David's recovering, and they say he'll pull through. So Jake disappears to give Sally the good news. Good news, your stalker's a shit murderer, and he barely cuts people instead of killing them. Douglas watches from the same diner as Inspector Andrews pulls up to the rehearsal building again. Upstairs, he chats with Sally about the case. Unfortunately, they haven't received a letter in several days. Sally tries to get the inspector to unwind a bit by asking about his personal life, and Andrews admits that he'd just love to spend the rest of the day chatting with her, but there's something that they should really discuss. She's able to guess his warning. Well, our experience has been in cases like this. He's after me now, isn't he? That's not bad. He asks if there's someone that she'd like to talk to about it, and she says she likes talking to him. He makes her feel safe. She asks if she is, and he's not willing to lie to her. Who knows? We cut to a dress rehearsal of the musical number from Never Say Never, prequel to the 1983 non-canon return of Sean Connery's James Bond, Never Say Never Again. Sally's performance seems a bit wooden, but I don't know if that's intentional or not. She takes longer to cross the stage than the director would like, and she blames it on a slow spotlight. The director tells her not to worry about his job, to worry about her own job, and after the argument, she storms off stage. I rewatched the scene, though, and she's not wrong. The spotlight is all over the place. <laughs> Jake meets her in the dressing room, and he asks why she isn't returning his calls. She says she has the inspector taking care of her now. You know, I might have been of some help. I didn't want to disturb your domestic bliss. Oh, come on, Sally. He asks what's wrong, and she talks it all through. At the age of 50, 55, I'm about to burst upon the world in a musical. The first preview for this masochistic little adventure begins in about three days with a lighting man who appears to be learning on the job. My secretary's been attacked, now David, and... Oh, yes. Just a minor detail. There's some fruitcake out there who apparently wants to kill me. She tells Jake that what they have isn't a relationship, it's charity. She asks him to leave, and we cut to Douglas walking through the rain outside the theater. Later, Sally sits down to a meal with the inspector. He advises her to let her understudy play the part for the preview, and she politely refuses. We cut to Elsa, the maid, alone in Sally's apartment. She receives some dry cleaning at the door, and when she goes to hang it up in the closet, she is suddenly attacked by Douglas, 
who somehow gained access to the apartment. This was very startling for me. Yeah, it it it's a it's it's really nicely edited. Yeah, uh, because like her closet's all mirrored doors too, and so we're kind of looking down the hallway into this mirrored closet area, and you don't see him hiding in there at all. But there's like the second she she puts the clothes in, the second she closes the door, it's like he's the, right there. The mirrored there. cabinet opens, and he pops out. At he her. you know he comes from behind her. And he grabs her, and it just like, and then it immediately cuts into that room, and it just, it's just very jarring and 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 scary. But I'm confused how he got in here. If there's she's a door being man, watched 24 hours, and there's well, she's not home. Right, but so, I, I would assume they would stage people at the places that she's going to be. I think they're just with her. Yeah. I don't okay. think that they'd put her that they wouldn't use resources on an empty apartment. Maybe because because when she comes back. Uh, she has the uh, other officer, Emily, right. yeah, with her. He wrestles her to the ground and then drags a straight razor across her chest, drawing a line in blood across her shirt. If she's supposed to be dead, it's the least convincing kill so far. And she slowly passes out, but it's like, what? He dragged a blade across her shirt and drew a red line. Yeah, I mean, later we see the body slumped over in a big pool of blood, so yeah. she is dead. As he creeps back out of the apartment, he finds a room full of memorabilia. He walks up to an Art Deco-style oil painting of a younger Sally and slashes a big X across her face. He snatches a trophy from her desk and swings it wildly, destroying framed photographs of Sally with other celebrities over the years. Downstairs, we see Sally and Detective Stoltz, her personal security, stepping out of a taxi, and we cut back upstairs where Doug is still fucking things up. And then we see Sally opening the door with her keys and finding everything disheveled. Yeah, but I think he's, I think we're supposed to think that he's in there screwing right. things up, but he's back at his house smashing all these photos that he has of her. Oh, is that what's going on? I think so, because, or well, I mean, it's e- it's either that's his house and his photos, which I think it is, because I feel like there's other, like, images where you're like, that apartment doesn't look very nice. Um or more time has passed than they're alluding I, to. I think it's that. I think it's just they're they're cutting it to make it look like it's happening at the same time and it actually happened hours apart. Mm. Because it looks like he picks up what's supposed to be an Oscar or uh, something from her okay. desk to destroy Maybe stuff. Maybe it is, with. yeah. Sally calls out for Elsa and gets no response. Detective Stoltz clears the room and we hear Doug's voice reading a new letter. Dearest bitch, see how accessible you are? How would you like to be fucked with a meat cleaver? We flash forward to hours later as Sally cries alone. Someone enters the room to check on her. It's Inspector Andrews, and he offers to call Jake, but she shakes her head no. That night, pacing her room in pajamas, she gets a phone call from Doug. Hello, Sally. I want to kiss you. I want to touch you. I want to make love to you. She immediately hangs up to call Jake, but Heidi answers. The next day, we see Detective Stoltz slowly waking from a bed in the hall and begin exploring the apartment. She finds Sally has left. She panics and calls Andrews to explain that she was drugged, either by Doug or Sally, and that Sally left while she slept. We cut to Doug watching a news broadcast where gossip columnist Liz Smith, as herself, reports that Sally has withdrawn from the previews of her musical and despite claims that she's locked up in her apartment, has left town, according to her inside sources. We cut to a beach house in a thunderstorm. She hears a truck pull up to the house and moves to the window to lower the shades. Suddenly, a man in a raincoat is pounding on the window. She lifts the shade again, and when the man sees her, he apologizes for startling her. He saw a light on and thought there may have been an intruder, but he seems to know Sally personally. We cut to a bar in the city where Doug and another man are making eyes at each other. Doug follows the man out of the bar and up a staircase to a building rooftop where the man starts going down on Doug. I was really, like, confused in this bar scene because I was like, man, this guy looks just like the other guy. And I hate when movies do this and they cast <laughs> people that look just like the other guys. And I didn't realize it was for a reason this yeah, time. Yeah, it was on purpose this time. Doug leans back on the rooftop and reaches above his head for the straight razor that he put up here in advance. He flips it open and then he slashes down at the man blowing him, slitting his throat. A dangerous move, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he douses the man's body in gasoline and then lights it on fire. He stabs a fake suicide note into the wall. Dear Sally, 
This is the only way I can atone for the pain I have caused you. Now, my dearest, you are free. Let my burning body be a monument to the great love that might have been. All my love, Douglas. So are the police to assume that he slit his throat and then set himself on fire? Or set himself on fire while slitting his throat? Yeah, it sounds like a two bullets to the back of the head situation. We cut to a dark kitchen in Sally's apartment and the inspector flips the lights on. He almost leaves a note on Sally's desk but realizes she's probably traumatized by finding notes in her apartment. I think it... I was confused by this because I think it's the note that he wrote saying that he killed himself. Yeah, that's what I think. But 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 that would be evidence and I don't think yeah. he would leave it there. Yeah, exactly. Why would you why would you take that and give it to her? Cuz it's a it's a federal crime to steal people's mail. Checkmate. Ah, he's an inspector. He's going to follow the rules. <laughs> We cut to the beach where she's sitting on the sand near the beach house and Jake approaches her from behind and lifts her to standing. The shot is muted, but he seems to be breaking the news that her stalker is dead and she hugs him overjoyed. We dip to black and we see Sally sleeping back in her apartment again. Belle startles her awake with a tray full of breakfast in bed. She looks good. There's barely a scar on her face and Sally is ecstatic to see her. Which seems unlikely because it seems like it's been days or weeks Maybe yeah. a few weeks at most since she got cut in the face. And I'm like, and a gash like that from the straight razor? Like, you would have needed stitches, which isn't going to leave this, like, little nice scratch on uh, your it face. It depends on how deep the guy went. It seems like he doesn't really know what he's doing with it. Yeah, but if he didn't actually cut her that deep, then she didn't need to be in the hospital sobbing. And she didn't need to be passed out in a hospital bed. And like Victim blame much? <laughs> no, I agree doesn't make sense they wouldn't hospitalize her and put all those bandages on her face it was just a tiny cut but we did that earlier this year in uh, nighthawks yeah for uh but lando i don't know why we didn't just put a nice big gash on her face with some stitches because it's, it's maureen stapleton you don't want to put a big gash on her face she's nice it should have looked better than before just because i like her bell sounds on the verge of tears at their reunion which was apparently jake's idea <laughs> Jake sent a car to Watertown to get me. Why don't you two get married? Never mind, it's none of my business. She's right back into assistant mode, announcing that she invited the inspector to the premiere of the musical and that she's due for rehearsals to cover the changes they've made since previews. She very quickly runs out of steam, though, and collapses across the bed. Eat your breakfast and get your ass out of bed. (laughs) Jake shows up before the show with a bouquet of flowers for Sally. A stage manager, Pop, compliments them, and Jake jokes, Nice flowers, I They're not for you. She apologizes for the terrible things she said to him during this ordeal and gives him permission to be happy with the new love of his life. He interrupts to explain that he broke up with Heidi this morning. He realized on the beach that they belong together. Maybe we're not grown up enough to make it work all the time, but uh, I think we could give it a hell of a try. Think of something funny? please think of something funny (laughs) i thought for sure this was like a death sentence now right yeah for sally it was like oh if he wants to get back together well you're not gonna make it through this movie a member of sally's staff hilda pops in to check on her and notices that she's interrupting because they are kissing we finally see a remarkable woman which is the musical number sally's been rehearsing the whole film Then we move to the tail end of a song I would call No Love. (laughs) When it ends, I like getting to name songs that don't have names. It's just my duty and they're real and now it's real. It's canon. When it ends, one of the background dancers sets a riding crop on a table backstage. We see quick inserts of Douglas preparing himself before cutting back to the show where Sally sings in the center of a clamshell bed. We see Doug dressed up in a tux dropping knives into all his pockets on the way out the door. Sally launches into the worst of the whole batch, Hearts Not Diamonds, which was nominated for a Razzie, but lost to Baby Talk from Paternity. This song was rough. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they asked if she could sing, but I don't think she... She performed in musicals. But I'm saying, like, I feel like the note, the high note that I think she's supposed to be hitting... She's not hitting. She doesn't hit it. She goes low instead, and I feel like they tried to get her to do it, and she couldn't, so they changed the song because the note that they go to just doesn't make sense. Right. I agree. I was trapped in 
their setup. No let up, wanted hearts, no diamonds. I've had enough champagne. I don't care if I don't fly around the world again. But oh, it's not that easy. I don't know where to start. I've played with diamonds for so long. It's hard to recognize a heart. I'll give you hearts, not diamonds. And all you have to be is quieter than the world tonight. Keep me from the noise and light. Keep your diamonds. Hold on tight to me. Douglas rudely shows up halfway through the last song of the musical. He seems as annoyed by the song as everyone else because <laughs> he's just sitting in his chair, dripping with sweat, burying his face in his hands. But when the song ends, Doug joins a standing ovation. Backstage, Sally has kisses for everybody, and it's honestly terrifying to watch in this post-pandemic situation. <laughs> Belle drags Inspector Andrews over. Sally, Raphael won't come to the party. Congratulations. Oh, no, no, mm, no, I'm afraid you. I'd be out of my element over Two there. drinks, I, you'll be in your element. You, you right. sure? Oh, yes, please. Belle leads him out of the room, and on his way out, it sounds like he's confessing that he really did want to go to the party. <laughs> he's glad they talked him into it. Sally turns to kiss Jake last, and she is left alone with Hilda, who offers to collect her party dress for her. The theater slowly empties out. Hilda takes more dresses to hang up, and when she opens a door backstage, she finds Douglas drenched in a bright red light and he stabs her hard in the chest and closes the door again pop the stage manager is listening to a radio broadcast about today's horse races when douglas pops up in front of him to say good night and when pop offers a good night in return doug jams the knife into his gut and drops him to the floor to bleed out doug wipes the blade clean and then locks a nearby door before stealing a set of keys realizing she's been gone for a while sally starts calling to hilda but when she heads for the door Douglas tears open a hanging curtain to block her path. His tuxedo is now heavily bloodstained, and Sally is paralyzed. After a moment, she moves around him and snatches up the riding crop off the table backstage as she races toward Pop's desk, screaming his name, but when she gets there, she finds him in a puddle of blood. Sally can hear keys jangling, and Doug steps out holding them, indicating he can follow her anywhere in the building. I think... I think he's showing her that I locked the door that you yeah. can't get out of this door here. But there's other doors. I, th I thought it would have made more sense if she at least tried the door and then turned around and he was jangling the key. She runs to a smaller dressing room and hides around a corner, stupidly in plain sight of a mirror through the doorway, but somehow Douglas still misses her. He chases her downstairs and she runs across the stage much faster than she did at rehearsal. <laughs> when Doug gets closer, she cracks him across the face with the crop, he catches up with her again and gets a hand over her mouth. He complains that she has treated him like garbage because she's famous, but the truth is she hasn't treated him like anything because she didn't even really know he existed until the day he attacked her assistant and has never written to him. He wrestles the writing crop away from her and she crawls backward across the floor away from him down a row of theater seats. He slaps the crop against the back of the seats while complaining to her that she never wrote. She reminds him that he is a complete stranger and he is horribly offended. I don't know you! It's not true, Sally. Ah! You know my name? You know where I lived? Ah! You really disappoint me, Sally. He hits her hard with the crop throughout the incel screed, never realizing that, no, she doesn't know his name or his address. He continues chasing her around the theater seats, screaming all the while, and when she hides under some chairs, he drags her out by the hair. He, he leaps across those theater seats. Yeah, he's like it, Roberto Benigni. Yeah, I was like, I, I mean, I'm assuming that there's probably, like, supports or something like that for him to actually land on. But... It, I, I think he's just hopping across the back of the seats. I mean, it's really impressive. Yeah. Because you could really quickly eat it and be in a lot of for pain. For sure. Well, I think people were freaked out when Benini did it at the Oscars. When she appears weakened by the assault, he offers his arm for support and he tries to pat her hair down nicely to move in for a kiss. You're pathetic. 
He fishes a blade out of his pocket, and Sally tries to reverse psychology. Come on, Douglas. Here's your chance to be one of those foodlums that kill their victims for nothing. A thief who murders little old ladies for a quarter. Goddamn terrorist who slaughters innocent people. That's what you really are. He tells her she's making him angry, and she reminds him again that she doesn't give a fuck. He holds a knife up in front of her face, and eventually, when she doesn't react to it, he collapses into a nuzzle with her, begging her to love him. She pushes him away and jams the knife in his hand into his own throat, and his eyes go wide as he bleeds out. She props the dying man in a theater chair, and we hear his first letter. Dear Miss Ross, I have finally worked up enough courage to write you. You do not know me, but who I am does not matter. If there is such a thing as a soul, which is the basis of all life, then you are my soul, and your life is my life. This is the first letter of what I hope will be an everlasting correspondence. Your greatest fan, Douglas Breen. I was so glad that she killed him in the end because I was certain that, uh, what's his face, the her... James ex-husband was going to come yeah, back that, that and, Jake was going to save her yeah that he was going to come back and save her and I was so happy when she just took it into her own hands and managed to to kill him herself yeah we slowly track away from Doug's corpse in a theater seat until we see Sally crying in the foreground leaning on stage she turns to walk past him up the aisle and out of the theater and credits roll as we fade to black from the top of the theater the novel ends with the death of the actress oh really right yeah that makes sense yeah. um and it's possible that the film originally ended that way too but this ending is the is a reshoot ending mm. so whatever ending they had originally they didn't like they reshot it all we know about the original ending is that bean said the original one involved garner more so it might have been him saving her well i definitely don't like that i would have been okay with if he killed her. if he killed her i think that also would have been a really good ending and it would have I probably pissed audiences off, but probably, you know, but I, I think if they changed it for that reason, it's more because of John Lennon than it was because oh. they wanted to stick to the book. Oh yeah. That makes sense. I, I think they wanted to turn it around so that she had the upper hand and because you're supposed to care about this person. Like yeah. really the whole movie is told from her perspective, not, yeah. not as much from his, mm-hmm. but she hated the new ending and she hated the film in general. She oh, really? has done nothing but shit talk it since it came out. But I have to say, I didn't hate this one. I liked no, it. Yeah, I um, the only thing that I am a little bummed about is that the first five minutes of the movie is so fucking cool. All the all this like macro photography and mm-hmm. these crazy lips, and I, I expected more surrealism moving forward that we didn't really get anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. It's still a nice like this was a really nice print of it. it Absolutely, it looked beautiful. Yeah, I I was just looking for more of that really creative directorial stuff and the rest of it was very paint by numbers in terms of the actual yeah blocking of things but yeah. uh the performances are all great i don't know if i buy her as you know a broadway stage actress mm-hmm. um even though she was <laughs> right that's the problem I, I i think uh and i don't know if it's because of the direction or what but um so many times when she's performing in the rehearsals like she's not going full energy because it's not a real broadway performance Mm -hmm. but then we see her on stage at the end she's doing the same thing she was doing in the rehearsals and it's like okay why did you why did you one take that and and not stop down and remind her that this is supposed to be the actual performance in front of an audience but she got a standing ovation so yeah it must have been great but uh then this is uh beans i think first performance so or first feature film so really good turn from him oh, as, yeah. the, as the psychopath. Um, and obviously I love Hector Elizondo and everything. So Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, it's a thumbs up for me, uh, if only because I just... I, and honestly, the funny thing to me is that the, the realest person in the whole movie is the Maureen Stapleton character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's the person who sells the role the most. Yeah. Everyone else feels like a character in a movie and she just feels like the real person. Um, where are we going letterboxed? Do we know? Um... I actually have it surprisingly high. I have it at uh, 16 out of 61. It is below Caveman and above The Nesting. All right. Richard? Uh, I have it at 18, I okay. would say. Um, I have it below Cattle Annie and above Windwalker. I have it in 35th. 
out of 61. It's just under Sphinx, and it's just above high risk. I mean, I liked it, but um, there's nothing that's super standout about it. Um, other than that first sequence and I really thought especially the stylistic ending of like the typewriter and ripping the paper yeah. out of it and then the director's name lines on the place I, I guess what I would say is there's nothing that I didn't like about this movie sure. and there's so many things on my list where I'm like I really didn't like a lot of things yes. about these movies it and was so, it was inoffensive yeah <laughs> that's that's a good way of putting it <laughs> <laughs> but um and the performances are fine I actually think Lauren Bacall is maybe the weakest performance of the bunch I liked her I, I I like her and I think she's adorable when she's doing her the dances and stuff in, in the in the routines and everything. But um, I I just felt like she felt the least like a real person mm. of the entire cast. Um, and obviously uh, James Garner uh, seems like almost too sweet. Like the character was written to be too supportive. Like somehow they separated, but there's no explanation as to why they would have separated. Yeah. And he's just like the nicest person ever and just wants to get back together with her because she needs him. Um, which is like usually the way people write female characters where yeah. it's just like literally all this person wants is to make make the main character happy and be great at everything. So I feel like his character is a little one-dimensional. Um, well, he's also not in the movie a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. I mean, he's in a lot of scenes but most of those scenes are really quick. Yeah, I I just would have liked to see him sort of drift off with his girlfriend and then for Hector Elizondo to come in and be the support that she needed yeah. in her life. Like yeah. I felt like that would have been a really fun connection for her to make and it wouldn't have felt forced or anything like that. Like it, a Windows situation. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. I yeah. But yeah, I still like the way it ended up. I think I might have liked it more if if he had killed her at the end. I definitely wouldn't have liked it if he was almost going to kill her and then Garner popped in and saved yeah. the day at the end. That would yeah. be unacceptable. But um, I totally it totally would have been fine with me if if Bean had outsmarted these people by faking his own death and then took care of her in the yeah. theater. Yeah. Um, I also think it's weird that um, he has her up against the stage with the knife. She stabs him with the knife, but then moves his body to the yeah. second does row? She, does she drag him back there? <laughs> well, the front row seats are reserved. Oh, that's true. That's for, the press box. This is for my friends only. Yeah. He's still in the splash zone. <laughs> that's what they call it. This isn't water world. <laughs> oh, you mean sea world? <laughs> you, you, you know what I want? No, I meant water world. <laughs> the universal show? Yeah, they yeah. have a section that's marked off in colors so because you get wet yeah, by the they, jet ski. They have the same markings at a, at a Gallagher show. <laughs> you, you know what I would have liked more than the knife? Um, is, I want the knife. <laughs> Give me the knife. Um, is because he put the pen in his pocket. Right. Oh, the one yeah. he took from the person yeah. earlier. And, and like with him pressed against her, if she felt like the pen. And, and thought it was the knife and then jammed that into his well, throat. Well, no, because he's got the knife in his hand and it's really in an awkward place to reach. But that pen would be really easy just to grab and slide up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that would have been great. That, that would have been, been great. It would have been, it would have been really poetic. And it's yeah. mightier than the sword, I heard. It's true. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. We wrote a better movie. Let's make it. <laughs> we remake this entire film as is, but instead. <laughs> but he uses the pen. We just switch out a couple of inserts and we're good. Our director here was Ed Bianchi. This was his first directing credit. He directed Second Unit on Times Square last year, but he directed four episodes of The Wire, eight Deadwoods, and more recently he has directed seven Boardwalk Empires and six The Get Downs. Novelist Bob Randall also has a screen story credit on Zorro the Gay Blade later this season. Writer Priscilla Chapman, just this. Writer John Hartwell, just this. Uh, are they even real people? <laughs> they weren't in any of the production notes except that they got the credit at the end, and their only credits are this movie. The composer for the film was Pino Donaggio. So far we've reviewed his work in Home Movies, Beyond Evil, Dressed to Kill, and The Howling. He's back later this season for a third De Palma film, Blowout. The score has been compared to the work of Bernard Herrmann, which makes sense because it's a very Hitchcockian story. Uh, The music for the musical within the film was written by Marvin Hamlish, who is one of two PGOT winners. He's also the second person after Billy Wilder to win three Oscars the same night for Best Original Score, Best Original Dramatic Score, which was for some reason a different category at the time, (laughs) and Best Original Song. 
He was accepted to Juilliard as a six-year-old. What? He was an accompanying pianist for Barbara Streisand, Sam Spiegel, Groucho Marx. He wrote his first major hit at 21. It went like this. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. He scored Take the Money and Run, Bananas, Koch, which is one of our Patreon options for this month, and The Spy Who Loved Me. We heard his work in Seems Like Old Times last year, and next season we'll hear his work in Sophie's Choice. Lyricist Tim Rice was a longtime collaborator of Andrew Lloyd Webber, co-writing Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Evita with Abba's Benny Anderson. He did all the lyrics to the songs in the musical in this film. He has Oscars for writing Don't Cry For Me Argentina and A Whole New World and Can You Feel the Love Tonight? He didn't write A Whole New World. He did. And he wrote, Can you feel the love tonight? And, Don't cry for me, Argentina. (laughs) I I heard you say those things, but for some reason in my head, I thought that that one was one of the... um, Mencken? uh, Yeah, Alan Mencken I think it was a co-writing credit. And uh, he shared the writing credit for Can You Feel the Love Tonight with Elton John, obviously. Yeah. And the Oscar. Cinematographer Dick Bush was the DP of Patreon Poll Losers, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, and Tomorrow, with several O's. I was going to say two, but there's a bunch of O's in that word. He also lensed Saul Bass's Phase 4, which we just watched on our own time, outside of the podcast, because you don't own us. Just kidding, you own us. Last year, he lensed One Trick Pony and Falling in Love Again. Editor Alan Heim previously edited Network, All That Jazz. He's back later this season for So Fine and later Quick Change, American History X, and The Notebook. Lauren Bacall played Sally Ross. At 19, she played Slim in To Have and Have Not, where she met future husband Humphrey Bogart, with whom she would reappear in three more films, The Big Sleep, Dark Passage, and Key Largo. We'll see her next in our mini-sode review of Altman's Health later this season, which also starred James Garner, and the two would reunite one more time for My Fellow Americans, where she plays Jack Lemmon's wife, not his wife, And uh, then they reunited once more in heaven a month apart in 2014. She's also in the 74 Murder on the Orient Express, Misery, Dogville. She appears as herself in an episode of The Sopranos. And she provides the voice of the Witch of the Waste in Howl's Moving Castle. And her final credit was for a voice she did on Family Guy. Oh, gosh. (laughs) She was awarded an honorary Oscar in 2010 for her contribution to film. James Garner played Jake Berman. He's the scrounger in The Great Escape. He's Tank Sullivan in Space Cowboys. He's probably best known for his television work on The Rockford Files or Brett Maverick, for which he played the title characters. He also appears as another character in the late Richard Donner's film adaptation of Maverick starring Mel Gibson. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed Garner on the podcast? No. That's right. A series of Polaroid commercials aired during the 53rd annual Academy Awards ceremony wherein his wife was portrayed by Marianne Hartley, who we've now seen as Alan Arkin's wife in Improper Channels. Maureen Stapleton played Belle Goodman. She was in On the Right Track earlier this season, and she'll win an Oscar for her performance this year in Reds, uh, in which her character Emma Goldman shares a last name with this character. But my favorite role from her will always be Ma Kelly from Johnny Dangerously. Hector Elizondo played police inspector Raphael Andrews. He's in a bunch of Richard Gere movies, including Pretty Woman and Runaway Bride, and last year's American Gigolo. He's in The Princess Diaries, and more recently he was Ed Alzate in 193 episodes of Last Man Standing. Michael Bean played Douglas Breen. He's in The Rock. He's Corporal Hicks in Alien, but he's probably best known as Kyle Reese in The Terminator. And more recently, he has played Lang on The Mandalorian. Anna Maria Horsford played Emily Stoltz. She was Rosie Washington, the social worker, trying to help one of the girls in Times Square last year. She's also Naomi in St. Elmo's Fire, Dee in 88 episodes of The Wayans Brothers, and Mrs. Jones in Friday and Friday After Next. Kaiulani Lee played Douglas's sister. She was Charity Camber in Cujo. She's Chief Ellen Jameson in The World According to Garp. Charles Blackwell played John Vetta. He was the speaker in Times Square last year. Dwight Schultz played the director of the musical. He's Howling Mad Murdoch mm-hmm. on the A-Team. He's Barclay on Star Trek The Next Generation and Voyager. Barclay? Barclay. 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 Broccoli. 
Broccoli. <laughs> it's spelled B-A-R-C-L-A-Y. It's Barkley. Broccoli is the uh, nickname that the crew of the Enterprise gives him because they find him so bland. Oh. And then Picard accidentally calls him Broccoli. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, he also has voice acting credits on The Wild Thornberries. He's Eddie the Squirrel on Cat Dog. He's Dr. Animo on Ben 10. And he's Mung Doll in Chowder. Dana Delaney played the saleswoman in the record store. This was her first film. She's Colleen McMurphy in 61 episodes of China Beach. She provided the voice of Lois Lane in 44 episodes of Superman the Animated Series and many iterations of the show since then. Mm -hmm. She was Catherine Mayfair in 65 episodes of Desperate Housewives. Robert Weil played Pop. He was the hot dog vendor in Night of the Juggler, presumably the one Dan Hedaya fires a shotgun at on the street. He was also Saul in The First Deadly Sin, and later Bobo in Moonstruck, and the mailroom boss in Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. <laughs> when I was looking up his credits and I said mailroom boss, I was like, you know, and I can just picture him with the blue letter, Bards! <laughs> Get this letter to Musburger! <laughs> Griffin Dunn played the production assistant that handed the letter to Bell. He's Paul Hackett in After Hours, and Jack Goodman an American Werewolf in London later this season. He also directed Addicted to Love, Practical Magic, and Movie 43. Wonderful film. Well, one of Movie 43s. Right. All of it. No, they were all different directors, right? Yeah. Each segment. Liz Smith played herself. She's a gossip columnist who also plays herself in The Nanny, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the film, Murphy Brown, Ugly Betty, and other things. Stephanie Williams played a dancer, she was Officer Foley in Back to the Future 2. Lionel Pina played the record shop customer who wants to talk to Dana Delaney right behind uh, our killer. He played Loco in Night of the Juggler. He was the Puerto Rican girl's husband in Willie and Phil. And he was third teenager in Hero at Large. I believe Kevin Bacon was credited as second teenager in that film. Anne Pearl Gary played another fan. She was just a hostage in the cable car from Nighthawks. Madeline Moroff played another fan. She was a wedding clerk in Willie and Phil, and she played a friend of Sandy's sister in Stardust Memories. That's when they're in the apartment and they're all talking about how crazy it is that this lady got raped the night before. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Boys plays another autograph seeker. That might be the one who approaches her outside the taxi on the street. Uh, he's credited as Delivery Boy in Fatso, probably the one who brings all the, like, the giant bags of food to the yeah, apartment. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a mime in Hero at Large, and more recently he played a choir singer in the cult choir from Kimmy Schmidt. Okay. At the end of the credits, uh, there was additional, like, kind of like additional credits at the end. One of them was a creative consultant, huh. um, Alice Spivak, uh, or Spivak. Uh, and I was kind of curious about what creative consultant, I assumed it would be for the dancing. Oh, maybe, uh, yeah. Um, but when I looked her up, uh, she does a lot of acting. Um, in fact, she was in Stardust Memories and Times Square. Uh, she's also in Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, she uh, there's another one. Hear no evil, see no or see no evil, hear no evil. The uh, the prior Wilder movie. Correct. Uh, yeah, so she's got a lot of acting credits. But it was when I looked up for this film in additional crew on IMDb. Yeah. So for the fan, it's just creative consultant. But for other films that she did. Uh, a film she did in 72 Buck and the Preacher she has Dialogue Coach for 83 a movie now and forever Dialogue Coach so um, that might have been her job on this yeah I'm assuming that since most of her credits are acting or dialogue coaching interesting um, but I'm wondering who she was coaching uh, yeah nobody here had an accent and, and, and no one most of the major stars were veteran actors yeah that's weird I think that's everything for the fan if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. will always be free, but if it's worth it to you, a donation as small as a buck a month is greatly appreciated. $5 patrons get a shout-out on the show, a monthly exclusive episode reviewing a title from the 70s, and a hand in choosing each month's film. As an added bonus, this year we're starting to fill in some blanks from last year with about 20 minisodes reviewing titles that didn't make the cut from 1980. Joining now unlocks 21 full-size 70s reviews and 17 minisodes. From September of 1971, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following eight titles. Creatures the World Forgot, 
The fourth and final installment of Hammerfilm's Cave Girl series, after One Million Years BC, Prehistoric Women, and When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, following a Stone Age tribe who communicate mostly in grunts as they struggle to survive, directed by Don Chaffee. It stars Julie Ega and Brian O'Shaughnessy. So this could be a follow-up kind of to, to Caveman. Yeah, similar to that, but directed by Don Chaffee, who I think, didn't Pete's he do Dragon? Pete's Dragon yeah. and a couple of MacGyver episodes, or at yeah, least yeah, one? Yeah. Maybe the one with Q? Uh, the Escape, I think. Uh, I can't remember. I know he definitely did a MacGyver episode. I can't remember the title. Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Al Adamson's sci-fi horror about the meeting of the classic movie monsters. It stars Lon Chaney Jr., Angelo Rosito, and features appearances from famous monsters of film lanes Forey Ackerman and, without warning, director Graydon Clark. Evil Knievel, Marvin J. Chomsky's biopic about Evil Knievel, starring George Hamilton as the world-famous stuntman. Koch... Jack Lemmon's directorial debut and finale, an adaptation of Catherine Topkins' novel of the same name, starring Walter Matthau as an elderly man who leaves his family to avoid a nursing home and befriends a pregnant teenager. The Last Movie, Dennis Hopper's follow-up to Easy Rider about a stuntman working on a film in Peru who quits the business after an actor is killed on set and joins a local tribe, making a quote-unquote film of their own. Lust for a Vampire, the second installment of Hammerfilm's Karnstein trilogy of lesbian vampire stories, directed by regular Hammer Helmer, Jimmy Sangster, and starring Ralph Bates, Barbara Jefford, and Susanna Lee. See No Evil, Richard Fleischer's psychological horror film starring Mia Farrow as a recently blinded woman being stalked by a psychopath. Sunday Bloody Sunday, John Schlesinger's British drama about a bisexual artist played by Murray Head, splitting time between relationships with a divorced woman played by Glenda Jackson and a gay Jewish doctor played by Peter Finch, each of which celebrate their 50th anniversaries this coming September. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Happy Birthday to Me, which IMDb describes like so, at the snobby Crawford Academy Virginia's group of friends start to go missing after horrible events that happened to her as a child around her birthday. We leave you now with the trailer for Happy Birthday to Me. Someone's having a party for the top ten, the senior class snobs. Before they get to celebrate, six of them will die in the most bizarre ways you'll ever see. Virginia, don't go away. Come over here, Virginia. It is up to you to determine whether you wish to subject yourself to fear, terror, and shock. Because of the bizarre nature of this birthday party, pray you are not invited.